0: May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have, during these um, these weeks after Easter, these weeks of Easter, um, been looking at this, uh, the stories in the Book of Acts. Uh, the, the lectionary kind of gives us a, a gift in, in giving us the Book of Acts to study throughout the, the season of Easter, the seven weeks, but it also kind of makes it a little complicated in that we have a post-Pentecostal church before Pentecost actually happens, but such is life. You can't always have what you want, right? So you just have to deal with it. And what we're looking at in these um, these last few weeks have all been around the same issue. It begins in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. You don't have it before you this morning, but it goes like this. Peter and John are going to the temple. It's during the hour of prayer. It's quite interesting that they're in a, um, a post-resurrection time. You know, they're, they're Christians. They, they believe in Jesus. And they're still going to the temple in Jerusalem to pray at the appointed time. And so they go to the temple in Jerusalem. And as they're walking in, there's this beggar who's sitting by the gate. It's a particular gate. Luke tells us exactly what gate it is. It's the gate called the Beautiful Gate. And, um, and they're walking in. Here sits this beggar. Um, I think I told you last week, I imagined him with a little basket, um, a little reed mat, and he's speaking in an English accent, you know, alms for the poor. And and, um, and I don't know why he does that, but he does. And so here he has his little basket. He probably has a little sign around his neck, something like that. And, And Peter and John are walking in, and they see him, and they say, look at us. That's exactly what they say, look at us. And he looks up, and he assumes that they're going to give him some money. But Peter says, silver and gold have I none. I have no money to give you. But what I do have, I give you. And he reaches out and he grabs the man by his hand. Now, this man has been, he has been crippled his entire life. He sat on this mat his entire life. Peter grabs him by the arm and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he pulls him up. And before the man knows what's happened, he's standing on his feet. And he looks down, and he's amazed, and he jumps up in the air, and he shouts, and he probably shouts, hallelujah, I don't know what he shouts, but he probably does shout that, and he's excited, he's thrilled. And they go into the temple together, right there at the gate, they're going in together. This guy jumping up and down, shouting, can you imagine the commotion? And so people start looking, and people say to one another, isn't that that fellow who sits out there at the gate with the sign? Yeah, he still has the sign around his neck. Look, it's him, you know. That's not in your Bible. It should be. I mean, it's not. And they look and, they, and everybody's like, wow, how did that happen? And they all start looking at Peter and John. And Peter says, look, not our power, not our piety. It's not because we're super holy men or we're magicians. That's not how this happened. He was raised up and able to walk. By the power of the gospel. And here's the gospel message. He tells them that Jesus that you crucified, yeah, that one, he has been raised from the dead. This is the message. This is what made this man stand up and walk. The power of this message. And everybody's marveling at it. They're, they're wow, isn't that amazing? And people are, are, are listening to this and, and they're hearing it and they're, they're struck to the core of their being. Now, it seems like everybody should like that, right? I mean, doesn't it go without saying that if you do it a good deed, that people should like that? I mean, imagine. Imagine David Nix walking into the hospital. There's a person in there that he doesn't even know. And they have, you know, some terrible disease. And David says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And their cancer is gone. And they pull out the tubes and they get out of their bed. And walk. I mean, can you imagine what would happen in Akron General if that happened tomorrow? People would be going and who would be against that? Somebody would, I'll tell you that. There would be somebody who said, Nix, I don't know what your, your training in medicine is, but you have no right to do that. I mean, th- there would be somebody out there, wouldn't there? You know there would be chapter 4. Look at, look at the Acts lesson. A man has been lame his entire life. He's dancing, he's jumping, he's shouting, he's happy, he's praising God. And as they, that is Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, he's um, the the strategos, the strategy one, the chief of the police. And it's a singular person, the chief, the captain. So the priest and the chief of police, the the, the chief of the religious police, you get that, right? And the Sadducees, these are the rich aristocrats, um, landowners, the very few select. Kind of run the show. Okay? Came upon them. Look at verse 2. Look at that. Greatly annoyed. This word appears only two times in the New Testament, both by the hand of Luke, both in the book of Acts. The other times in in, in Acts chapter 16, you remember um, uh, uh, Paul is walking and and there's there's this girl that's filled with some demonic spirit. And she's coming behind them and she keeps saying... You know these guys. These guys are preaching the gospel. They're, they know the living God, and, and, and she keeps saying this out loud. And Paul gets so annoyed that he turns around and he casts the demon out of her. Same word, appears only two times. Greatly annoyed. These guys are not annoyed because of a good thing. They are annoyed because these men have no right. What are you doing? Oh, look look at the text. And they were teach. They were greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people. <laughs> you have no credentials. You guys are you're lay people. You're uneducated fishermen. You probably can't even read. Some of them couldn't. In fact, I would just go so far as to insert here, it's almost certain that Peter could not read. Because there are two letters written from, by him in the New Testament, and they are obviously written by two different people. He had a secretary that he dictated to. They can't read that they're uneducated men. They're fishermen and farmers and, and, and carpenters. We run the show here. Hey, look at the stole, the big fancy uh, emblem, you know. Well, we run the show, not you. What are you doing? They're greatly annoyed. And what do they do? Greatly annoyed, say, we're going to go out and have a beer and forget about all this. No, that's not what happens, is it? Look what happens. Look, look at the text. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them. In the Greek, they laid hands on them. I'm guessing they roughed them up a little bit. Right? They they, they took them into custody until the next day. Don't want to show a hands here. they had to spend the night in a jail cell. You know, this is kind of a lonely place, isn't it? Tossed them in. Oh, I see that hand. I'm joking. I didn't. Um, they're in the jail cell, you know? Overnight. We don't we, we don't want to, you know, what's going to happen the next day? What's going to happen? They arrested him and threw him in jail. The first thing that I, I really noticed from this text is that sometimes proclaiming the gospel involves suffering. It involves suffering, doesn't it? They shouldn't be in jail. They've done nothing. They healed a man for crying out loud. It's like going into the hospital and, and, and curing some other why would you be angry about that? We've done nothing wrong. There's a long history of people of God who have been faithful and found themselves in prison. It goes way back to Genesis. Remember Joseph done nothing wrong, just a good little fella. His brothers got mad at him, angry, jealous, threw him into a, 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 a cistern, and off he went. Tried to do his job well. His boss, boss's uh, wife makes a false accusation against him. He's in jail. 17 years? You know, it's a long time to suffer. Daniel, St. John, exiled to the island of Patmos. Paul, Peter, these guys are thrown into prison. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel sometimes involves suffering. And we scratch our heads and say, you know, how is it that these these you know militant terrorists are killing Christians in the Middle East? And I want to say, how is it possible that they don't? Because anybody who proclaims the gospel has the potential to suffer. And that's like sort of a scary thing. What do we expect to happen? Well, imagine Peter and John. They're thrown into prison. Look at who comes to their trial. Okay? Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders, the scribes. You've got rulers, elders, scribes, right? They're The, the scribes are the scholars. The rulers are the people in power. The elders are the, the, the guys who, who are the, uh, the sort of authority figures, presbyterially. Um, they're all gathered together with Annas, the high priest. He's actually been deposed by the Romans at this time, but he's still like... High Priest Emeritus, or whatever, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, nobody who knows who Alexander is, and, and all who were in the high priestly family. Big trial goes on. Does it remind you of any other trial in the New Testament, like the one that happened with Jesus? They're here, they are, they're, they're surrounded by all these authorities. But despite the fact that the gospel. Proclamation might involve suffering, it still demands to be proclaimed, doesn't it? Just because it's dangerous, just because it's difficult, just because we might suffer, is no reason not to proclaim it. What what would you do? I mean, do you ever think about, oh my, you know, your drug in front of the court? Here's what Joe Boyce would probably do. I would probably say, this is a big misunderstanding. You see, um, I'm really a nice guy. I think I even voted for one or two of you, you know. Um, and look, uh, you know we we run a nice little thing over here. It's really not a bad gig and um you know come by we'll serve you some uh, lemon bars after church. You know it would be it'd be soft pedaling, right? Backing off a little bit. Is that what they do? It's not, is it? Listen to what Pe- uh, then Peter verse 8. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning good deed done to a crippled man, is that really why we're here? Because we did a good deed? Well, then we're guilty, He basically says. But then he says, look at verse 10, let it be known to all of you, the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, same exact text, right? Back up in the, the previous chapter when everybody saw the man leaping and, and running into the... What did they say? Christ that you crucified has been raised. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, is alive. That's really important because it's a lot of things they could have said if they didn't. They didn't accuse them of apostasy. They didn't accuse anybody of anything. They didn't say you're for this and we're for that. They didn't soft-pedal it. Instead, they went right to the core. Here is the gospel. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a human being, fully God but fully human, was crucified, he died, and he's alive again. This is the core of their message. The gospel was proclaimed in deed and now in word. Word and deed, they go hand in hand, right? The gospel has been proclaimed. What what does that mean to us? Well, I think we too could confuse the gospel. If somebody says to you, Well, what's the gospel? Well, you know. No, here's the gospel that God came in Jesus Christ. He was fully alive. He was crucified. He has been raised again from the dead. That is the core of the gospel teaching. That is the the charisma, the central message. Christ has died, Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That is our message. That and nothing else. That's the gospel. Well, where do we get involved in in, in disputes that kind of get us off the gospel? Oh, you know them. How about denominationalism? Oh, isn't that wonderful? Well, I'm Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Pentecostal. We're Methodists. We're Anglicans. I don't even know what that means, but that's what we are, you know. Angelicans, some people say, right? Listen. There are all kinds of doctrines that we get caught up on, don't we? Do we believe in predestination? Or is it, um, you know, personal responsibility? Or um, speaking in tongues? Or all these sorts of things that we get in disputes about. I don't want to say that I don't have opinions about them. I do. But those are secondary and tertiary issues. The gospel. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's where we stand. That's the core of our, our, we don't get involved in order. We have, we have elders, we have bishops, we have nobody. You know, it's, this is what we fight about. and, and make the, We get caught up in the cultural arguments, the cultural issues about entertainment, and ethics, and those sorts of things. doesn't mean that they're not important. They are. And you knew I was going here. Politics. Oh, my. I've given some deal of thought to this over many years. Here's what it seems to me. That the devil loves politics. Absolutely adores it. It is his finest creation. Because you can be so right. I can be so right. That everybody who, who thinks like me is right. And if they don't, they're sinners. <laughs> and so I get, you know, I'm against the murder of unborn babies. And I am. But I also have a great affinity for saving the environment. Uh, you can't. That's not part of our platform. That's not where we go. Uh, yeah, it is. Because it's God's good creation. But here's what happens when we divide ourselves We can find the enemy on the other side of the political aisle, and then we can attack, and then we can be righteous because we have attacked our enemy. Never minding that all throughout the Gospel and throughout the letters, especially Paul, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We do not get involved in these skirmishes. Doesn't mean I don't have a political opinion. I do. If you ask me, I won't tell you it. But it does mean that we can have them. You know, we do have political opinions. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with people voting. I vote too. I've even sent, uh, you know, a couple dollars a time or two to a, a, an event or a, a policy. But that's not our hope. And the people who don't think like me are not my enemies. And nor should they be yours. The gospel demands to be proclaimed, and it is important that we stick to the gospel. I think if you were Pentecostals, this would be a good place to say amen. I'm in there with you. I'm I'm going. Too bad we don't have Pentecostals around. All right. (laughs) And the gospel provides hope. The gospel demands to be proclaimed. It sometimes involves suffering, but it always provides hope. Many, verse 5, polloi, many believed. About 5,000. About 5,000 people heard this message, Christ has died, Christ has risen. Implied, Christ will come again. And they believed. They turned and believed. They believed in God. They came to Jesus. They saw a man healed. And then, in this famous verse, you know it, Right? It's, it's in verses 11 and 12. "This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, uh, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. And how many of us, no, shine, no sign of hands again, how many of us have read this verse and said, "Take that, Muhammad, you know, Take that Buddha, you know Jesus. You take that, whoever you are. Yeah, I don't know you do. Only that wasn't written to people who were in a pluralistic culture, was it? It was written to people who already believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was written to people who already believed in the God of Jesus. It was written to people who were already part of the community of faith. There is no other name. See, Jesus is at work in the world. And let me just say it to us. This is not an opportunity for us to involve ourselves in a polemic against the world. It is a call to us as Christians to take the name of Jesus into the world. That's what it's about. It's about the way that we carry the name of Jesus into the world, not the way that we go out and attack other people. We take that name of Jesus so seriously that we take it into the world. And men and women, boys and girls, hear the name of Jesus and their turn. And they find health and wellness. I was, um, I was reading about um, Spurgeon this week. Do you know this guy, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, 19th century English Baptist preacher, called the Prince of the Preachers, Charles Spurgeon was? Um, in his, uh, in his uh, journal, he records um, his conversion story. He was converted as a child, and he said for years he had this this sort of dread, this distress, he says, of mind and body, um, that he was in terror of God. He knew God's law. He had, he had been born into a Christian family. He had been brought up in church. He, he said, I, I, but I still had this terror, this fright of God. And, and he, says, um, he says, I prayed. Oh, how I prayed, but it seems like the heavens were brass, that that there was no sense in which God heard my prayers. He said, so I searched the Bible. I read every privilege and every promise given to the children of God. But he says, I did not know the gospel. I was in a Christian land. I had Christian parents, but I did not fully understand the freedom and simplicity of the gospel. I went to churches, he said. I went to every place of worship around my house. I heard fantastic sermons, Sir Spurgeon was saying. Sermons on the sovereignty of God, and I would be agreeing with them. Yes, I agree with that. Sermons on all sorts of doctrine. I, he said I agreed, it, but it did not ease the angst in my soul. And then he says, one Sunday, it was a terrible snowstorm, but I wanted to go to church. And the closest church was this primitive little Methodist chapel. He said, and I go in there, and it was such a bad snowstorm, there were only about a dozen people there, and the minister himself didn't even show up, presumably snowed in. I don't believe that ever happened. But um, he, he goes in there, and, and he, says, he says, no one gets up, so this poor man, he says, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Let me read what he says. Now it is well, this is Spurgeon talking, that ministers should be instructed, but this man was really unlearned. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason he had nothing else to say. The text was simply this, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words correctly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now that doesn't take a great deal of effort. It isn't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. A man need not be worth a lot of money to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourself. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, I must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that. Just now, look to Christ. Spurgeon said, in a moment, he understood. That's the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ, crucified, raised to new life. And it changed him. He said he was changed. He says, the man in the the pulpit that day looked at Spurgeon, (laughs) called him out by name and said, you look miserable. He said, I couldn't believe. He spoke to me. I'm a stranger in this church. He said to me, you look miserable and you'll continue to be miserable until you look to Jesus. Proclaim the gospel. It may, at times, cost you. You may suffer for doing this. But it is the only hope for the world.